Welcome, everybody, to Hollywood Godfather. Again, here we are. You can't get rid of us every Wednesday night. Remember, tell your friends, tune in. I want to welcome my writing partner and my co-host, Pat Picciarelli. Good evening, everybody. And our millennium, Megan Horan. Coming How are we from, doing? Coming from... Where are you coming from this time? I like I like checking in with you. I'm always on all over the place. I am currently I outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay, perfect. You're still at mom and dad's. <laughs> that is it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And grandma. So your grandma's yeah, still and grandma's, alive. grandma's here too. That's fabulous. Well, Pat, what are we talking about tonight? Well, you know, you and I uh, have been talking about uh, an infamous Las Vegas figure named Mo Dalitz. And I think uh, you're you're acquainted with this guy. Even whatever's been written about him, you know a lot more. So I figured we would uh, talk about Mo. Well, it's funny that you should say that because I met Mo <laughs> when I was 17, and he couldn't uh, believe so it. What's that? Oh, 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. No, it was like in 19, uh, blah, 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 whatever. But, <laughs> but I met him through Maya Lansky, who sent him. He's originally from Cleveland, from the Haywood Gang. This guy's been a notorious guy. And, but the interesting thing about him, uh, Wilbur Clark, for people who don't know who he is, he was one of the uh, profound, uh, the, the biggest builder in Nevada in the early days. And he went broke. And he ran to the... And he get broke building stuff in Vegas. Well... Well, uh, another guy we know when broke, Bugsy Siegel, and he wound up dead over it. So That's true. it happens. <laughs> no, but he ran to the mob to borrow the money, and uh, he had to stay on for, I think, like 10 years, fronting the Desert Inn, which was a famous, one of the first famous and stayed famous for a while. And Mo was the guy on property as, as Maya's man. And that's just as the syndicate was moving into Vegas. And then they wound up taking over the Stardust Hotel and six more hotels. But Mo was there. I think Mo died in 89, I think. Anybody have that, that date? Yes, August 31st. Yeah, I, I remember. I went to the shul. I went to the, where the big... I mean, this guy was so infamous. And they, every, every time they appointed a new gaming commission... They all say we're going to bring in Mo Dalitz to get licensed, and every I've heard that for thirty years, and those guys last you know four to eight years as a gaming commissioner, but the guy was never brought in, never got licensed, and he died, owning still owning hotels and casinos without a license. How did he manage that? Because he took over the hotel part of it and brought in casino operators. <laughs> He was actually well, he enter what? I'm sorry. He, he couldn't get licensed anyway. I would of course he couldn't. He was a felon, and associated to the mob. Other than that, he was perfectly qualified. Of course. <laughs> what was his felony charge? So, a, a couple of them early on in life, but just his association with the syndicate was enough. I mean, he, uh, you know, this guy was a pretty tough guy. But he, he ran it like the old school. He reminded me so much of Costello and Tony Accardo and the guys I met later on. Even Marcello's. I mean, these guys, they didn't do their own work and they weren't loudmouths. They just did it. And you've tried to figure out who did it. But uh, in his heyday, I mean, when you think of Mo, and we'll get into it more because I'd like to hear what you guys looked up. I mean... Mo Dalitz, which we'll get into, is responsible for me having State Street. Is that weird? How this guy intertwined all those years? How did that come about? Well, his uh, Paradise Development Company built the mall I was in, and on the outer part of that mall on State Street, they built their offices in amazing matching mahogany panels and marbled floors. And they were done with it. They were all retired with it. And uh, Erwin Malasky, I mean, I'm, we're going to talk about names that nobody's ever heard of and have been so squeaky clean. In fact, these guys were so smart, they got into the television business to get rid of money. 
And they created a company called Lorimar, which owned Dallas and everything else. I mean, they, anything they touched, but we'll get into it. It's, a, it's an interesting topic tonight. And I'm glad yeah, we, we talked about it. Megan, what'd you find out about it? I always like hearing the millennium point of view <laughs> when you hear Mo. Um, well, one thing I didn't know is that you said he had felony charges from when he was younger. But one thing that I found was that though he admitted under oath that he had been a bootlegger and operated illegal gambling houses, he was never actually convicted of a crime. Exactly. No, the, the cases don't run away. <laughs> You never got convicted, like me. My sons think I'm a felon. I never got convicted <laughs> of a crime. I mean, but you got to get convicted. You could get locked up for it or subpoenaed for it, but that's that's what he did. So what else did you find out, little girl? Um, <laughs> so the the Kefauver hearing. Kefauver. Kefauver, sorry. The famous Kefauver. Um, he was quoted saying, if you people didn't drink it, wouldn't have drunk it, I wouldn't have bootlegged it. Talking about his exactly. time of bootlegging during the Prohibition. Well, um, so many people use that because, you know, he was he was also involved during the same time Joe Kennedy was, Frank Costello, you know, that, that Prohibition era. They blamed it even on the judges. The judges and everybody were their customers. That's why a lot of these cases went away. Because they'd say, you know, well, we know you're bringing booze in. Uh, send three cases of bourbon to my house. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's crazy how they did it. Then, you know, they don't have tapes or anything else to collaborate it or, or film like we do today. But the Dennis was, was smart. He realized uh, early on that this was a secret organization. I mean, he stayed way under the, uh, under the radar all his life. Well, his rabbi was Meyer Lansky. He represented Meyer in, in, in Nevada. I mean, Steve Wynn wouldn't own what he owned today if Mo Dalich didn't, didn't give him the green light. When I first went there, they said, go to Las Vegas Country Club. You're going to meet this guy, Mo Dalich. I said, whatever you want. And they knew who sent me. And especially Meyer, found, I found out later, actually, Mo Dalich and I became neighbors on the Las Vegas Country Club. And uh, we had a company called Syntex Corporation out of Texas that were building houses. So I said, can I handle this in negotiation? He said, what do you know about construction? I said, nothing. I know about negotiating. I said, you, how many models are you going to build? They said, we're going to build six models of different houses. I said, great. Mo's going to live in one, and I'm going to live in the other one until you sell it. And <laughs> we stayed in it for three years. <laughs> In fact, when, when I did the, the, uh, the prank on Sinatra, when he had the thing at uh, Caesar's Palace for his daughter, when she had to hit these boots are made for walking, and hit it all the newspapers. You can look it up. It's in Review Journal, all the papers. And he didn't invite me. He wouldn't invite me. So there was a guy, Alan Natchev, who was the PR guy. I said, out of all the VIPs, who didn't RSVP? He said, Jackie O. Onassis. So then I, that's all out of here. I had somebody call from offshore and said that they're coming in. We want to surprise Sinatra. Make sure there's a table for two for us ringside. And I get a helicopter from uh, Elias Ghanem, who owned Air Avia, and he parked it in the backyard. Well, obviously, my backyard I shared with Mo. And he said, what the hell is this doing here? And we painted it. And put Onassis's crest on it. <laughs> and then I left my backyard and flew to the Caesar's Palace with it. It was nuts. Crazy yeah, times. I, if I recall from the book, you had a cape. Yeah, I had a cape. It was an Edwardian look. I had a cape. It was like a leather look. And I had my own security guards because I insisted on landing in the parking lot close to the front door. I didn't want to kill anybody. So they created a circle. And I had about 15 other people inside because everybody was lined up along the staircase watching all the celebrities come to this gala for, for Nancy. And we had a buzz saying, we just got word Onassis and Jackie O are landing in the parking lot in five minutes. And I'm circling the parking lot, watching like little ants coming out the front door till it was packed. And then I landed. <laughs> One of, my better, one of my better stunts. 
I should get past everybody. What do you mean? I have my own guards. The 10 guards that stopped me from the, once the propeller stopped spinning, I got off. They put a V in front of me. They, did, they thought it was them. And we walked right in. No, it was a perfect stunt. I did a lot of those down there then. It's crazy. But I got a lot of phone calls, obviously, even from the little guy. Johnny, what was that about last night? What, what was that how helicopter for? How long did it take until Sinatra resumed talking to you? Because I'm sure. About six months. <laughs> <laughs> That's short for him. Usually it's well, six years. Know, you know, talking about Frank, as we're doing a lot of research on him. I mean, Frank actually had to kiss Moe's ring, not Moe kissing Frank's ring. When he came to town, Moe was the guy, and everybody had to pay homage and go see him. He used to hold court at the Desert Inn, I mean, the, Desert, the Las Vegas Country Club every day. And I'll tell you a statistic you won't believe. When Tony Spilatro got there, he called him and told him to meet him there. And Tony Spilatro got word from Chicago, he says, you better go. And that's the one thing Tony Spilatro hated was being told to do anything. But when he did his research, they said, if you don't show up, you'll be out of town. We guarantee it. And he called Chicago again, and they said, you're right. We pay him homage. He's to be respected, and he works with us, not against us. So go say hello. And the day, that day, he bought... Tony Spilatro bought a membership to the Las Vegas Country Club. <laughs> and about six months later, half the memberships were quitting because he was a member. <laughs> what exactly, specifically, did he do? Mo? Yeah. He just had to sanction it. That's all. Know who's involved, who, who are you going to hire. Uh, you know, it was just, that's what he did. And that's what he was supposed to do. I mean, soon after, you know, 1950, he's, he, he takes over the Desert Inn. Then they took over the Stardust Casino. They took over the Riviera. Anybody that wanted to come in, he knew how to make it work. And nobody was going to tell him no. And he did it. He answered to Chicago? He, he answered to Cleveland and Chicago and New York. He answered to the Syndicate and Maya in Miami. Maya was his guy. I don't think there was any more powerful Jewish heritage in the mob other than Maya, then Mo, and then we can go down the line to the rest without mentioning them because some of them are still alive. One I talk to once a week. <laughs> but uh, Johnny, if, I, if I could interrupt for a second, you want us to you want to transition us into a commercial break, real quick? Please, we got to make money. We'll be right back. <laughs> don't go anywhere. I'm watching you. I know where you live. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco extra virgin olive oil from Sicily. They created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneFineItalian.com That's CorleoneFineItalian.com Okay, we're back. Now we're talking about Mo Dalitz, and if you do any kind of looking up on this, I mean, research on the guy, looking up, so that's how old I am. But, I mean, they actually became, you know, he built... Sunrise Hospital. He built a hospital for the city. This guy himself, he's like crazy. But he was so towed up. I mean, Earl Molansky, Merv Adelson, all these guys, they, they founded Paradise Development. They were building everything down there. They built the biggest mall, Boulevard Mall. They owned it, the first mall. And then the biggest thing that they gave to the city as a gift, they built a convention center to make... Las Vegas, a destination for business, which we all know what happened there. We have three or four conventions every four days down there. But that, they used to be their guys. And you know, it's, uh, and you couldn't stop them. I mean, B B Benet Brith made him man of the year. <laughs> you can't, I mean, just, I mean, 
just the Jews down there were going crazy with this, which was amazing to me. Was he in power up until the end? Right till he died. Well, he got sick three or four years prior, and uh, not only did he get dementia, he went blind. But, you know, he was, I mean, the people that were handling him, even for those last few years, were like, you know, he was carried into showrooms. This guy was like that kind of guy, right till the end. Did he have a family? He had a family. Nobody knows that much about him. He kept that totally, you know, under the rug. He had uh, his godchild is, you love this connection, because we mentioned Yale Cohen. Yeah. His godchild is Gil Cohen, Yale's son. I mean, they were wired every way you could believe. And these it's kids like, had. It's like, it's like, it's like royal, royal families into marrying. Right, exactly. And, and, like, and everybody wanted to know why Gil Cohen was the general manager of this front desk of anywhere he wanted. Then he went with Steve Wynn. When Steve Wynn came in, Mo would say, make sure this kid gets a job. Just like that, very subtle. You know, be nice, Steve, if you hire Gil, he could run the MGM for you. <laughs> like that. He was not, you weren't putting in resumes. <laughs> and that's how it worked. That's why I love Vegas. I mean... I was, I understand, most of the audience don't notice. I got there in 59 and left in 89. I mean, I stayed there every day, but I was there 30 years. And if Mo didn't let me do what I did and didn't give me his blessings, when I went from my building my hotel in 1979, he had even the planning commission on this side. And they gave me an access and, and a construction license. I never built, I didn't have an erector set, not alone built a $73 million hotel. <laughs> and he came to my opening party, which everybody, when he came, was like the Pope coming. But, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, they totally define it's who you know, especially in the Vegas world. How often were you in his company? I would say two or three times a month. He's not that kind of a guy. You know, if he wants you, he used to come to the States and eat. They all used to come and eat there. They loved it. Kirk Kikori and his sister. I had the who's who. The early diners that I loved, they come 5, 30, 6 o'clock. In fact, I put vegetarian food. The first time I ever heard of vegetarian food was because of Kurt and his sister. And, we, I mean, we, we catered to the ball. I, I had every top bar mitzvah party. In Vegas, because it got to be they didn't want to go hotels in the hotel ballroom to have three, four hundred people. They'd come to me because I wasn't connected to a public trading company or anything because they had every mobster and every celebrity in the world come to their bar mitzvahs for their kids. I had both of Steve Wynn's daughters bar mitzvahs, Jack Weinstein's, all their kids. I never gave them checks. Uh, what it cost me three, four hundred dollars for groceries is the greatest thing I could have done. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but somebody once told me that you, you're an honorary Jew. Is that true? I would like to be. I went to live in Israel for six months. I'll see if I can arrange that. Well, you know why I love Judaism. First of all, I fell in love. We mentioned in the book with uh, with uh, Sa Terry Salzman. I got her pregnant. She was one of the most prominent families from Chicago, the Foreman family. And so I was going to become a Jew. I was studying with Rabbi Ellison. And I, that's the only religion they don't welcome you in, especially an Italian with a reputation like mine. <laughs> well, they didn't know who you were. What were you calling yourself back then? Dr. J. Adams. Hello. Dr. Oh. Dr. Yes. J. Adams. Oh, did you have a specialty doctor? Anything you want me to be. <laughs> All right. I, I could be a veterinarian or a gynecologist <laughs> in, a, in a minute. <laughs> And I had the PBX operator. It's funny you should remember that. I had the PBX operator paging me constantly. Dr. J. Adams, Dr. J. Adams. And you and I are going to get really into the Fontainebleau yeah. on the Sinatra thing because we're get, getting up to that thing with Elvis and him in what, when that was 57 or? Yeah, Signo 60. And 1960, they couldn't believe I had Cabana Juana. I had a gin rummy game there with Mel, who was the bartender. He used, the money used to be get held at the bar so nobody could say they couldn't pay. 
When you, you go there and buy the chips and play it in the Cabana One gin rummy games, and these guys could never win. They couldn't figure it out. We had mirrors strategically placed. We, everybody, we knew everybody's hand. And we had some hotshot players from all over the world come. But the Fontainebleau, Ben Novak. Well, anyway, for our audience who doesn't know, the, the, the Mo Dalis character appeared in The Godfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that was the guy Michael was bar- baratting, saying, you're out, and, uh, and he got shot in the eye. They, they used two characters. Mo Gre- uh, um, Bugsy Siegel got shot in the eye. Mo died a natural death, but they, they couldn't have him die a natural death. How would Michael threaten him? You're going to get cancer and die or get Alzheimer's and die. So. <laughs> but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a funny... I mean, when, when you start to see how all this interwines, and unfortunately I had the privilege of spending 30 years there. And um, like even the State Street thing, I said, I'm looking for a place because I pulled the plug on my property. He knew that. And um, he said, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to open a club. He said, how much space you need? I said, I may be 10,000, 12,000. He said, I got the place for you. It's okay. So he said, go here, go there, and go look. I looked. I went back to the country club, which was two blocks away. I said, I love it. I said, but it needs a little renovating. He said, you call that kid. And I knew this kid, Tony Marnell. Tony Marnell, his father was a, a mason contractor. Then they became Marnell Correo Construction. And I got to know him because... I was told to use him to build my hotel. And he just was remodeling a property that they controlled called the Sands Hotel. (laughs) So they added extra footage of carpeting and drape and tiles. I used to go to see the renderings of what they were doing at the the desert, I mean at the uh, Sands, and say, Tony, let me have some of this and that and this. And then he'd figure out where we're going to do it. And I created all these different dining rooms with, you know, burgundy suede walls and all this stuff. I was buying it for like 10 cents on a dollar from them. But it was crazy times. Can never do it now. So, uh, oh, while he was in, in power, did he, did he do any jail time? Or was it no, jail no, time? never. They threatened him. A couple of guys threatened him. If my memory serves me right, uh, even even the, uh, I don't know how he got away with it. Even, because Ralph, when Ralph Lamb was the sheriff, that city was run by the Lamb family, which we got to get into that one day. The Lamb family was stronger than any mafia family. They controlled everything. They were the senator. The brother was a sheriff. Now you say a sheriff, you know, you think of a guy on horseback. Yeah, that was him. <laughs> but don't cross him. And you had to get a license from him after you were approved the guiding game commission, you had to come down and get fingerprinted and get a, a Las Vegas gaming license, a city license from him. <laughs> and most of your audience, our audience don't know, there was no locks on the doors of any hotels. It's 24 seven, there's not a lock. Next time you go to Vegas, you will not see a key to any door in Las Vegas. That was part of the gaming commission's rule. We had to have full access because you're open 24 hours a day. But with that said, Kirk Kokorin was ready to open the International Hotel. He got so busy, he never went for his license. 24 hours prior, Ralph Lamb calls him and says, you didn't come down, you can't open. So what are you talking about? I got to get in. So I got every license in the world. He said, you're not down here by the close of business today. I'm going to chain put running chain through all your doors. You're not getting in. So he called Mo. Mo called him back. He said, you better get down there. He'll do it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how crazy he was. But Mo, and Mo was such a gentleman. And a philanthropist give away things you wouldn't believe. I mean, they gave a lot of money to charities. I'm assuming uh, Sheriff Lamb retired a rich man. Oh, my God, did he ever. Yeah. A rich family. His brother, uh, Darwin, was, uh, Darwin, uh, Darwin owned a, uh, a ranch outside the city, but all the rest of them were, you know, senators, and they ran the city for years and years and years, and nobody had a problem with it. 
because you didn't have any problems. I mean, he, he was the guy, if we remember the riots in Los Angeles, he deputized anybody in Nevada that had a gun. Deputized them. And then he went on CNN News. You can look it up. On CNN News, he created a curfew for African Americans after 6 o'clock. If you're on the streets in Nevada, you'll be shot dead. We're, we're not all over the world. I mean, you couldn't believe how people were going crazy. But he had that power. He's telling you, and, and they, they tried to fight it. They say, hey, holy, if you put a curfew and the guy tells you the law, don't break the law. You won't get shot. <laughs> Different times. But Mo is the man. My man, Mo. That, that, you know what the greatest thing that he, we, we, we touched on, that, that they went into, they went into Lorimar pictures. They had some people wanted to do it. And if you look up Lorimar, you'll see Murray Vidalson, all the same guys, Arun Malansky. Then they opened up a, 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 a resort. Did you look into that at all? In, I did. in California? I mean, that place was the only place to go. It was called <laughs> La Costa Resort. In this resort, you had to be who's who to get a reservation in. And it was in La Costa... Was right right off of uh, before you got down to Delmar. There's a small community there between Newport. They bought all that land and created a resort for rejuvenation. Had the best doctors there and everything else. And that was one of their last big things. It was in Calabasas. It was a, a, a La Costa resort and spa. But I mean, it was that's what I mean. Anything they touched was genius. Yeah, the likes of uh, Modelis will never be seen again. Oh, yeah, no, that's all over. Co Those corporate world. Yeah, the corporate world. You know, it's like, and he had everybody around him, even uh, a guy that I, Charlie Myerson, was a very great friend of mine out of New York, and he became uh, a, a basically a mentor to Steve Wynn as a young man because of Mo told him, you be around this kid and watch him for us. And look what, where Steve went. And Steve would have got away with everything if his, if his wife didn't get stupid with the Boston Hotel, a billion-dollar hotel a year ago. You know, a scorned woman, but this time she really got scorned. She scorned herself. They lost, I think, $100 million in one day just on their stock. And they were divorced already. But th th those kind, you know, th these stories are so nuts. And for our listening audience, I mean, there's so much more than we can tell you in 20 minutes. But you read the stuff that these guys amassed, billions and billions of dollars. It's crazy. Before we continue any further, we have to take another commercial break. You want to send us off? I'm sending you back, too. Off and back. We'll be right back with some... Oh, this is my favorite sponsor, actually. You'll know why when you hear it. <laughs> Our second sponsor tonight is very close to me personally because you know how I love to dress. La Cosa Mia will be coming soon. This is just a teaser. Each week, we'll be bringing you more ways to get in touch once their website is up. This line of clothing is from all over the world, and I'm sure you'll want to wear it. Okay, we're back. Literally, we're back. Pat's back. I'm back. All right. I lost there for a minute. I returned. Okay. So how do we want to wrap up this segment? With the, just telling people to look them up. There's so much we could talk about. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, it's all, it's all part of Vegas history. I mean, you can go on forever. Yeah. Uh, depends on, on, on how deep your interest lies. It's a, it's a really, uh, truly a never-ending story. I'm learning. I mean, I've been doing this all my life. I've been involved, uh, not in the same way you were. I was in the opposite uh, uh, part of it. But uh, I'm, I'm learning something new every day about the, about the mob in Vegas. Even Sinatra, I'm working because we're, we're doing uh, research on a book now. But I'm, I'm learning more about Sinatra. And I thought I was pretty... Uh, Pretty up to date on, on his history, you know. After knowing you and all the stories I heard from you, but I'm learning stuff uh, that is hard to believe, hard to fathom what this guy did in his life. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's why I, I'm glad that we're, we're doing this book because, you know, uh, and doing it with all respect to the man because the guy was my mentor yeah. since I'm seven. And, but, you know, he had, he, he was a human being like most of us. He had problems and serious problems. And uh, fortunately, he went on to be who he was and, uh, and, and a legend, still a legend, fortunately. Will always be. They're going anywhere. Speaking of um, learning new things, is there anything about Mo Dalitz that you experienced that people might not know? I experienced how genuine he was as far as charities and people who had, you know, problems. I, I could see him numerous times, you know, say, call him and say, Johnny, why don't you contribute some money to this educational fund? And I knew that wasn't a question. <laughs> if I would, I said, sure, what do you think I should give? So I'd give him 10000 That's okay. <laughs> no, the guy who was that kind of, but that, I mean, that's how subtle he was. But that's the respect he, re, he should have gotten anyway. And, and I'm assuming a very good negotiator. Oh, my God, yeah. Really good. Yeah, I mean, we never had problems with the culinary unions and none of that stuff until Mo went. Then we had everybody had strikes. Everybody was striking. <laughs> they were waiting. Yeah. It's craziness. Well, I think it's time for our mailbag. All right. And before we get to that, one more little commercial for you. Not little. It's a big one. <laughs> we'll be right back. Thank you. Hi. Patrick Picciarelli here. Before we get to our listeners' emails, a quick word about the new fiction book series I've launched. Private investigator Ray Yale tackles his first two cases in Bloodshot Eyes and The Pop Line. Both books are in paperback and are available on Amazon.com. I've been a PI for 30 years, and these books are based on my cases. Enjoy. And we're back. All right, let's get to it. One of my Long favorite part of the show. Megan went First, into the bag. She turned black. We can't find her. <laughs> She's gone. You probably knew her. I got. I got to go right to my questions. Okay, I'm sorry. Go. No, it's okay. So first we have a little bit of a lengthy message from Anthony, but I'm going to read it anyways. Anthony says, hi, Gianni. First off, I want to preface my message by saying I'm a huge fan of The Godfather and was fortunate enough to hear you on Jim Norton and Sam Roberts and heard about the podcast. I've been a diehard fan since, and you, Patrick, and Megan just always hit it out of the park. I wanted to ask you if you knew Frank Sinatra's Uncle Babe. My father knew him and used to take me to see him on the waterfront off of North Bergen, New Jersey in the early 70s. I was very young, less than five years old. All I can remember was meeting him many times. My father telling me that he was Frank's uncle and that he could take my father anytime he wanted to Frank's house, although he never went because I think it was in California. Tell you the truth, I was so young that I don't really remember what he looked like so much, but I've always been interested about him as I got older. Hopefully I can hear some stories about him, and if you had a picture handy, would love to see it. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Out of respect to Babe, I don't know him, and uh, that, that's what families think, you know. Oh, I could take you to Frank's house anytime you want. You can get near Frank's house unless Dorothy okayed it, and it was okayed like 30 days before. <laughs> you know, they, 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 we, we, as Pat and I were saying, we, we did a lot of research. Most people in Hoboken didn't even like him after he left because he never came back. So it's a situation where uh, Babe, I think Babe's uh, brother was Marty, his uncle. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, uh, you know, that was a, a strained relationship to begin with. But we don't know him. I don't have a picture of him. I don't have a picture of my own uncles, not alone of Frank's uncles. <laughs> the, only time, the only time Frank went back to Hoboken was to see Dolly. He right. was mom. That was Otherwise, it. He didn't do any shows. He avoided all his friends. When he was young, he was bullied, pushed around. He just wanted to when, when you get When Frank Sinatra got pissed off at you, he was your enemy for life. Oh, yeah. I mean, he... he well, I shouldn't say that. Him and I have had some pretty knockdown, drag-out situations. But uh, he had a reason he had to come back to me, though. <laughs> well, he valued you, you know. I mean, uh, the people... He was particularly that way with the people who worked for him. You screwed up in his eyes once you were gone. Yeah. I don't care if you were with him, you were gone. Well, he was such a perfectionist, and that's why, as you, as you read our book that we're doing now, that's what was... 
killing him at the end because he couldn't be the person he wanted to be, but he had to keep going. And you'll find that out in the book. Next question. All right. Next is from Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie says, Johnny, did you remember Vicky who worked in the garment industry years ago and dated one of the mob bosses who put apartment houses on her name to avoid the IRS? She sold everything, took off with a guy she met in New York, opened a restaurant in Florida, and bought a huge home on the water. She passed away years ago, but who was the mob boss she stole the apartment houses from? Who was Vicky's last name? I mean, how many Vickys I know? Jesus. That's a, that's a pretty <laughs> vague question. It must be the IRS trying to find Vicky. <laughs> I can tell she doesn't have a ton of details. She's fishing for him. Yeah, hello. No, I don't know Vicky, thank you. And if she robbed one of my friends, Vicky's no longer around, if I know that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, next is from Kevin. Kevin says, Gianni, I am from Holland, and I read and listen to everything you do. What is the craziest thing you ever did together with Marlon Brando? Oh, my God. Well, we, we did a lot of practical jokes. but How about, to me, but the thing she told me, it was either uh, him and the dog going to a party. Oh, my God, yeah, John Kluge's house, yeah. Right, writing down uh, Park Avenue, mooning people. Yeah. Well, he did a lot of crazy things. We could pick them all out, but that's good, Pat. You remember that, yeah. I mean, yeah, these are grown people. This is 1970, 71. We're filming The Godfather, and he's in my 65 Bentley, and... I think Jimmy Conn mooned him from the station wagon. And then at the next red light, he's got his old skinny ass out the, my window. And I'm saying, well, see, these people are nuts. And this is my introduction to Hollywood. I'm saying, this is what they do. <laughs> I hope the kids on the street, it's just fun for life, man. Oh, he mooned, that, he mooned the whole wedding scene. There was three or 400 people there, young and old. He, got the, he won the award. They were trying to say who did the best mooning in front of the most people. At the wedding scene when we were posing for the bridal picture, and he looks over and he says, where's Michael? We'll wait for Michael. He already had his pants unbuttoned, turned around and dropped his pants in front of everybody. (laughs) The kids on the set that day are still in therapy, I hear. I'm sure. All right, next we have a message from Joe. Joe says, listening now to the Paul Anka interview with all the great stories, and it struck me that this podcast series should go in the National Archives for keeping alive all the great stories about all the pop culture icons of the golden era of American entertainment. Many thanks for bringing my parents' idols to life for me. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And and we want to do that. Well, we're actually doing it for Megan and you. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly right. Okay, next is from Lori. Lori says, hello, I enjoyed your book and the podcast. Do you have any scuttlebutt to add on the Johnny Stampinato murder and cover-up, which was one of the biggest scandals of the studio era? Well, there was no scuttlebug because it, it happened just the way he did. I mean, he used to get violent. He was so jealous. If, if anybody don't know what we're talking about, talking about Lana Turner's boyfriend. And Tell us who he was. Though. Yeah, Johnny Stampinato was an enforcer out of Chicago. And he worked for Mickey Cohn in organizing the studios. But he was such a good-looking guy. I mean, look him up. I mean, Hollywood good-looking, movie star quality. And went out everywhere. He was in a combo every night. And him and Lana Turner had this love-hate relationship. And she had a young daughter that I knew, I happened to know, and I knew her real father, Crane. And uh, the mother used to get abused by him. And she got up one night and stabbed him to death. That's the daughter, Cheryl. Yep, the daughter, Cheryl Crane. And there was no cover-up there. There was no cover-up at all. None. The daughter killed him, not the mob, nobody. There's no cover-up. That's the story. That is the true story. (laughs) A little time, right? Yeah. No, she didn't do anything, no. She got therapy. Ah. She got house arrest with her mother or something. They weren't giving her nothing. The studios made sure of that. Well, they, you know, Johnny was that kind of guy. If he liked you, he's great. You know, and just this wild image just came to me. 
who Johnny Stompinato reminds me of. He reminds me of Jimmy Kahn trying to be Sonny Corleone all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get that visual, but uh, interesting. Hmm. All right. Next is from Ken. Ken says, I love your podcast and never missed one. I would like to know if you ever met James, Jimmy Knapp, Napolitano, and any stories you may have of him. Jimmy Knapp is a great guy, and uh, all I know him is as a gentleman. I never did business with him. By the time Jimmy Knapp became Jimmy Knapp, see, most people don't realize, I left New York at an early age and then moved on to Vegas and the Vatican and everything else I was doing. If you read my book, I was young, and, you know, these guys are... They're all good guys, to, as I know, to respect them. I, I've been in their company at the weddings and the funerals that everybody stopped doing that all of a sudden once the FBI got cameras that were portable. And, uh, you know, it was <laughs> different times. But Jimmy Knapp was, should be respected. Good man. All right. Next is from Jeannie. Jeannie says, hey, Megan, I was just listening to your episode and heard about Gianni's clothing line and the pop-up shop idea. I suggest Salt Lake City be one of the stops. Hopefully, all three of you will make it for a visit. And if you do, I'll be the first in line to come see you. Thank you. Great. Pat, I think that's the genie who who yeah, was one of your, you know, best fan type things. Yeah, yeah. Very, very nice lady lives in, uh, I'm not going to tell you where she lives. But she's in Utah somewhere. She's in the wild of Utah. Anything... Uh, coming from a New Yorker, anything west of the Hudson River is the wilds. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in Salt Lake, actually. I can't. I, I mean, I was shocked when they told me there was a Playboy Club there, and I was on route to go to it. I left Chicago. I went to Denver, Denver to 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 play to the Playboy Club in Salt Lake City. I've never seen so many Jack Mormons in my life. And for people who don't know what that is, Mormons are not supposed to drink or cheat on their wives. This place was jammed with them. <laughs> are you considering uh, pop-up exhibitions across the country? That's all we want to do. We don't want to have any retail stores who are paying rent 24-7. There's no reason to it. So we, we have this idea. I think for the next 24 months, every, all the retail, even choice shops on Madison Avenue, I could rent them for a week, and that's it. And load it up and sell out every place we go. When it comes to the garment business, I believe they're called uh, trunk shows. Yeah, but they actually do trunk shows in department stores where you bring your trunks. We're doing stores. No, there's the trunk shows. They do a lot of that, like in a, a Bloomingdale's. They give you a section. There's a, a bunch of designers, and now the new thing. And I think the Kardashians, and then uh, the other guy that married uh, married her, he did it too. And they were doing Kanye West. Yeah, he, that's how they they were taking stores in great, like you know Chelsea that were vacant. They get to the landlord, said, "What do you want for a week? We'll come in." And that's it. You just go in and do it, and you do, and you, and it's all done by social media. You won't believe the lines before you open up. Right. I think it's a great idea. Yep. We have a lot of good ideas you're going to start hearing about on other things we're doing. Oh, yes. Other than La Cosa Mia by Gianni. <laughs> All right. Next is from Tony. Tony says, my question is, how well or how close was Mr. Russo to Alex Rocco, his castmate on The Godfather? Did Mr. Russo know any background on Alex, a.k.a. Mo Green? Alex Rocco, I met him on the set. I didn't really know him at all. I wasn't in any of his scenes. I wasn't in Vegas. It's you know, unless you're a, an actor, you understand. We could be in the same movie, but I would never meet you if I'm not in the scenes with you. Incidentally, well, Alex Rocco played the uh, Mo Dalis character. Yeah, exactly. Which I wasn't oh, involved okay. with. Yeah, he played Mo Dalis. Yeah, I looked Got him up once. So, uh, when we started the podcast, we did a show, and uh, his name came up. Uh, he, he got into a bit of trouble as a youth himself. He uh, had a little bit of a checkered background. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think uh, 
uh, Joe Colombo was the reason he got the part. They they wanted a lot of guys with some color, as they say, and a lot of guys were felons in that movie. Well, Lenny Montana even Lenny Montana, who was uh, Luco Brazzi, after he he was a, a, a boxer, then a wrestler, then a collector for the Columbos. And he cracked a lot of heads. So his, he wasn't stretching in his role at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next is from Tony also, but I believe a different Tony. He says, Gianni, I love your podcast and your team. My question, Mike Pisanello was with the Las Vegas Culinary Union from 56 to 86, most of that time as VP. I would imagine he was a very powerful man in Vegas. Did you know him? How powerful was that position? I know Mike for, for years. Mike Pisanello came out of Providence, Rhode Island, and I met him with, in Chicago. That's how he got the job. I mean, he... Uh, the Culinary Union, most people don't know, throughout the country, is one of the strongest under the, uh, under the uh, Teamsters. Figure out how many hotels, how many restaurants there are, and those hotel workers are in the Culinary Union. I like Mike Pazzanello. He's a nice guy. Hmm. Tony also said, I heard at least two union presidents disappeared during that time. Oh, yeah. yes. Question mark? You know about that? Yeah, both at McCarran Airport. They never got on the plane. They never got in their trunks, but they're gone. Probably still looking for their gate. Yeah, hello. Yeah. <laughs> All right. He said, lastly, did you ever go to the club Lucifer's in Boston? And did you know the owners? No, never went. All right. Well, that was the that was the end of that message. Okay, that was a long message. <laughs> a lot what, of questions. What was his name? Tony. Tony. Yeah. Well, he figured once he gets, why not? Lucifer's. <laughs> I know those guys. I'm not friends with them, though. All right. Next is from Pam. This is the last one I have for tonight's episode. Pam says, 2020 was a very tough year for many people. Keeping it positive, what were some of your favorite moments of the year? Well, we've excelled. You know, I feel guilty. I've, I've had this conversation about 10 times a day now because while I'm hearing of all the, you know, the doom and gloom, and I, I'm, I hate to say, you know, we've really excelled. Thanks to all of our listeners. We're launching a clothing line. We're expanding a whole situation, which you'll hear in the next week or two, that includes all of our listeners. And uh, we expand the food line for Corleone Fine Foods. Uh, we're writing more books. We're doing more shows. So, I mean, I, I, I mean we, we dug in. Pat, Megan, we've all been productive. Megan worked all, all summer. So, you know, it's unfortunate that most people, you know, they're, they're one-dimensional. So if they're a taxi cab driver and they lose their job, they want to sit home and collect whatever. We keep going. And we don't have to. But, you know, I, don't, I have too much energy to not do anything. The thing I can add to that is what he said. I'm done. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> is that we're saying goodnight that's it yeah that's all we have for tonight well again we thank you please keep supporting us all your reviews are helping us you could see even my my uh, Instagram page is almost at 8,000 oh you know who we have to thank at? Pat you and I and Megan have to thank Patrick Bed David today let me know uh, Valuetainment we hit 2 million views. I saw that today, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah. I, I happened to look it up because I was curious of the numbers, and I saw it change from 1.9 to 2. Yeah, we're 2 million, which I, for me, any, any 2 million people looking at me other than being in The Godfather, I take that yeah. as a big compliment. <laughs> I was probably the 2 millionth now that I think about it. I clicked on it, and it changed from 1.9 to 2. There you go. <laughs> That's funny that you looked that up. About Just five. Today. Five people emailed me right away. That's so funny. That's why I figure we should, Pat, I mean, that, that, not Pat Petrolli, but Patrick Bed David has been a good friend to us. Sold a lot of books, got a lot of people listening to our show, and um, it's been interesting. But thank all of yeah. you for making us a, a success. And here we are in 2021. I can't believe it. Thank God. I love God bless you all. Talk to you next week. 
Good night. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night. Welcome to Feinstein's. I love being here, man. It's so much fun all the time.